This program is a part of the Full Press Radio Network. Find this and all of Full Press Coverage's shows on fullpressradio.com or free on the Full Press Coverage app, available now on the Apple and Google Play stores. Hello, everyone. This is Ron Jaworski, and you're listening to Ira and Clark on the iTest. Pay attention. Well, as you should know by now, this is a Hall of Fame-centric podcast. Our and I are Hall of Fame voters, and Ian Glendon is a producer we think should be in the Hall and should be in Canton. Anyway, last weekend we lost our second Hall of Famer within a week and the ninth within this past calendar year. And that was former Atlanta and Philadelphia pass rusher Claude Humphrey, who was inducted into Canton in 2014. Now, Ira suggested we do something to acknowledge the passing of Claude Humphrey. And, you know, today we are. With us today, we remember Claude. And as we remember, Claude is former uh, quarterback Ron Jaworski, who was his teammate in Philadelphia. And, of course, a star with the 1980 Philadelphia Eagles who went to Super Bowl 15. And, Ron, thanks so much for joining us again. I wish you were under different circumstances, but uh, we'd like to talk to you about Claude Humphrey. Well, certainly uh, I'm honored that you guys uh, reached out to me to talk about Claude. Um, He was an amazing football player, but a better human being. Um, I got to know him very well as a teammate. Uh, I got to know him very well as an adversary. You guys know in the the early 70s, my career started with the then Los Angeles Rams, uh, and we played the Atlanta Falcons twice a year. The old... uh, NFC West was Atlanta, New Orleans, San Francisco, and Los Angeles. I don't know how it came up with that when you had two East Coast teams. Um, but, you know, we used to play against uh, Claude twice a year, so I got to know him as an adversary and knew how really, really good he was as a player. And then I think back to, you know, our Super Bowl team, and if you look at a guy that was uh, a major catalyst for our success, particularly on the defensive side of the ball, was Claude Humphrey. I mean, and back in the day, they, weren't, they didn't even – you know, I look at these sack numbers now – I, he probably doubled those numbers. I mean, sack numbers weren't kept. And, and you know, with the Eagles, we played a 3-4 defense and very seldom even rushed a linebacker. So we were dropping eight into coverage, and he was being blocked by two guys literally every play. Uh, that's how good of a player he was. So, but, but he brought more than that. You guys got to know him, you know, with the Hall of Fame voting and, you know, the interview process, getting to talk to people about him. It was what he brought to the team. It wasn't about necessarily the X's and O's of what he could do in rushing the quarterback and playing the run and commanding double teams on every snap. It was a leadership. Um, we were a young developing team when he, when he came in, in 78, 79, 80, 81. And, you know, that 80 year, he was fantastic. I mean, he, he was our, he was a pure pass rusher, but the leadership he gave the young guys in the locker room is something that, that, that stands out most to me. We needed guys like Claude Humphrey to lead our football team. You know, uh, Ron, we do our research on this show. And, yeah. you know, <laughs> Hopefully. Uh, so, Ron, by the end of the 78 season, you know, the Eagles were coming on, Ron. They were coming yep. on. And I looked up the first game of 79, Ron. You played the Giants at the Vet. You won 23-17. You threw two touchdowns to Harold, of course. Yep. Um, All the favor. <laughs> and, Ron, uh, the Giants, uh, I think Basarczyk was the quarterback. Uh, he was sacked seven times, Ron. Game mm. one, 
for Claude Humphrey. I don't know how many he had, but he got dropped seven times that day. And Ronnie came off the left side. Everybody looks, you know, the blind side, the blind side, the right end. But Claude Humphrey played left end, and he paid dividends from day one, Ron. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, like I said a little bit earlier, we played that base 3-4 defense, and Marion Campbell was our defensive coordinator. And Marion was very conservative. It was a coverage-based scheme. So we're, we're, we primarily rush three drop five underneath and, and, and three deep. That was that was kind of the scheme and force the quarterback to hold on to the football. But again, in that system, if you're a defensive lineman, they got five to block three. They may keep a tight end and they keep a back end, and you got no shot of getting the quarterback. But Claude and uh, Bigfoot Dennis Harrison, who anchored the other side of the defense, were two big, powerful guys. And, you know, with only a three-man rush, we'd occasionally bring that weak side linebacker, very seldom a strong side guy almost never a safety. So it literally was, you know, Claude and Bigfoot were taking on double teams all day long, and yet they were able to get pressure on the quarterback. And, and that was Marion Campbell's scheme, and we were successful with it. What was his leadership style, Ron? Was he a rah-rah guy? Or, or no, 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 Ira. He was a very calm, low-key kind of guy. He, he led by example. Um, you know, the great Albert Einstein said, there's only one way to lead by example. Um, you know, uh, and Claude was one of those guys. He was a, he, he brought the the a mentality to our team that we lacked. Um, you know, uh, he was a ferocious, ferocious player, uh, a workout guy, uh, and he really he really put his arms around the young players. Because I mean, probably year, I guess eight or nine when he came to the Eagles in his career, so he had been through it all. Um, and man, the young guys just looked up to him. They, they you know, when when Claude spoke, everybody listened. Uh, and it's kind of interesting, you know, after he retired and, you know, worked his way into the Hall of Fame, you know, Dick Vermeil kept us all in touch. Well, you know, Dick Vermeil has always been the glue, keeping the team together. And even, you know, after our playing days, he's still the same guy. So I remember going down when the Rams played uh, in Tennessee, probably 2001, 2002, uh, to cover the, cover the Rams and Vermeil's run. And so who shows up in the meeting room? Claude Humphrey. You know, <laughs> guys like that. It, it just, it's just the way it was. Coach would go to a town, his former players are in that town. He'd invite those guys to come to the meeting and say a few words and, you know, kind of inspire, even though they weren't his teammates on that picture team, he was an inspiring speaker. Did Vermeule give you any wine? He didn't have wine back then. <laughs> or, or, or it was his own private stock. Now, oh, you know, yeah. Actually, right. he, he's, I, I reached out to the coach yesterday. He's out in Napa Valley right now. He's probably That's on right. the tractor as we speak, you know, farming those vineyards. I bet he is. We're with former quarterback Ron Jaworski on the eye test for two. And Ron, uh, since Ari mentioned 1978, some of our listeners may not know this, but uh, Claude actually retired that year. Four games into the season with Atlanta, as you remember, yep. he left. And I think it had something to do with the scheme. I think they were playing a 3-3-5 then at that. So anyway, it had something to do with the scheme. But anyway, he was talked out of retirement the next year by, guess who, Dick Vermeil. And one of the reasons yep. was your defensive coordinator was... Marion Campbell. Campbell. That's right. And Marion Campbell was uh, a favorite, I think, from what I'm told, of Claude Humphrey in Atlanta. Um, but anyway, um, you remember that year. And, 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 I, and I, I was talking to you about what it was like that first game. But I'm sort of going back a little bit earlier. What do you remember about when you were told we're acquiring this guy? And what did you think when you first saw him show up? Well, I was thrilled. Uh, like I said, I had to play against him when I was in L.A., 
Um, and for the most part of my first four years in this league, I was the backup quarterback behind John Hadel in 73, James Harrison, 74, 75. The job was mine. I get hurt. Um, and we, we had, we had a right tackle by the name of John Williams, who was a damn good offensive tackle. Yeah. And he would have to face Claude Humphrey. And, I would not even know who we were playing that week unless it was the Atlanta Falcons because John already got into his funk the minute the Sunday game got over if we were playing the Falcons next week because he knew he was playing Claude Humphrey and it was going to be a long day. So it was just, just I would look at John Williams and say, oh, we must have the Falcons this week. You're already in that game mode. It's only Sunday after game or Monday in our first meeting. So that's the impact Claude had on guys. You know what I mean? He was a dominating player. Like I said, I, I look at these sack stats, and I know the people went back and studied probably the video. He had more than that 130 sacks. I will guarantee you that. If I went through every game tape and studied Claude Humphrey's sacks, it would be a lot more than that. And even if the sacks weren't there, the impact he had was just something that, that forced you to change your game plan. You had to account for Claude Humphrey no matter where he was. Well, as Ira mentioned, he played on the left side. And, and honestly, at that time, there were some great blockers on the right side of the offensive line. Yep. I mean, you got guys like, I think of Deardorff, Rayfield Wright, uh, Ron Yeri, uh, Russ Washington, who I, I, I yep. covered in San Diego, and, and George Coons. Um, do you have any memorable encounters with Claude when you were playing with the Rams or uh, even when you were with the Eagles? Or do you have Abs any memorable stories? Absolutely. You know, I did get a chance to play against Claude in, when he was with the Atlanta Falcons and I was with the Rams. And you know what I remember? Him, him getting close to me. <laughs> not getting a sack, getting close to me. And he'd be saying, I will be back, Ron. I will be back. <laughs> he'd be, hey, I'd be right to see you as close as he could. I will be back. I will be back. I'm like, I know, Claude, you will be back. <laughs> Crip reminding me. <laughs> <laughs> and he was. And he was, exactly. <laughs> but, I, I, you know, and then I think of Philly. And one, one thing that stands out, we had beaten the Vikings in, in, in Minnesota and in, in the Philadelphia region. It's kind of an, an – I know there's a picture of it down at the NovaCare Center, the Eagles facility. It's kind of the history of Dick Vermeil and our 80 Super Bowl team is when Charlie Johnson was an all-pro nose guard for us and Claude Humphrey after we beat the Vikings, picked up Dick Vermeil and they hoisted him. They took it was a regular season game, you know, and they, and they carried the coach off the field. It was a little bit much, but it was pretty cool. You know, <laughs> you know you, we didn't win, we didn't win the Super Bowl when the coach got carried off the field, but it, it was kind of cool. That's the kind of camaraderie we had on that team. And Claude was one of the leaders of that. Hey, we won the game, man. Let's enjoy it. Let's have some fun. Ron, uh, once an Eagle, always an Eagle, Mr. Jaworski. You know that. Um, and I want to ask you, this is the time of year, Ron. We're, we're cutting down the Hall of Fame list, Clark and I. We have to cut it from 25 to 15. And those are the guys that are going to be talked about on the Zoom call yep. uh, in the middle of January and, and, uh, and decide who, who's going to wear a gold jacket. Ron, I want to ask you about a couple of guys that are on this list of 25 that played for Philly in the 90s, uh, and I know how closely you, you are to that organization, Ricky Waters and Eric Allen. Ron, a couple of comments about both guys. Yeah, and obviously if you make that list, you're an unbelievable talent. And, and you know, just to be mentioned as a potential Hall of Famer, shows what a great career that you had. And I know how serious you guys take it. You know, we've spoken in the past about other guys I played with uh, and, and, and against, and I appreciate that you respect my opinion because even to this day, I still study the damn tape. When I leave you guys, I'll be looking at the Eagles game against the Jets, well, whatever, call that game the other day. 
Now, the Jets are obviously not a very good football team, but I still love studying the tape. And I, you know, obviously in the in the 90s and early 2000s, I was, you know, my work with ESPN and doing tape breakdown. I'm studying all the players. So I, I really have great respect for what you guys have to go through. And thank you for at least considering my opinion every now and then when uh, when you're close on something. But I have ultimate respect for all 25 guys that are up for nomination to the Hall of Fame. It's very special just to have, have your name mentioned. The two guys you mentioned, and, and normally I'm pretty close on this, guys. Pretty close in, in my knee-jerk reaction. Um, rather than say I'm going to study this and look at all the stats and all the numbers, I want to go to, go to my optic of what I remember the, of the guys. I think Eric Allen is a definite yes, a def, in my opinion. Dominant, dominant player, playmaking play player, big play type player. Eric Allen, yes. Ricky Waters, great player, Hall of Famer. I don't think so. And I love I love both those guys. But that would be my quick knee-jerk reaction to when someone just throws that name out there. That 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 would be the way I would go now. Maybe there's someone that you can convince me differently, but that would be the way I would see it at the moment. And, Ron, um, you study this league like nobody's business. Uh, we got a month left, Ron, long season. <laughs> um, who do you like showing up right now in Los Angeles? In uh, in February, well, I, I, I'm still on. I know you're down there, probably on the golf course, just outside of Tampa, there, Iris. So I still think the Buccaneers that that damn number twelve guy is just a pain in the butt for everybody. And when, when when Tom gets it going, he's a tough guy to beat. So I I I think the Buccaneers are still going to be a the team that someone's going to have to knock them off that that pedestal. They're they're a good football team, and you know Bruce will get them going in the last quarter. Brady will start getting ultra focused. Not that he's ever not focused, but he starts getting into the playoffs. He starts sniffing that Vince Lombardi trophy. So you know he'll get that team really focused. And the AFC's, I mean, fairly wide open right now. Everyone's kind of looking at at New England, and you know that was a big win they had against the, you know the Buffalo Bills, and just a bizarre, crazy game, but. Boy, the league is absolutely just fun to watch right now. Uh, I, I just – I never envision a rookie quarterback taking a team to the Super Bowl and going to knock off a Tom Brady. So it's hard for me to say the Patriots. I, I still like the Buffalo Bills, and I think they're going to learn a strong lesson from that defeat at the hands of the Patriots last night. You know, Sean will get them going. He'll, he'll, he'll get those guys going. So I'm, I'm leaning a little bit toward the Buffalo Bills being the team that will represent the AFC – in the Super Bowl. But by the way, I actually like the way this schedule is playing out with the seven team playoff team added. I mean, it's really created a lot of excitement. I mean, the Eagles right now are six and seven and half game out with four games to go. So there, that, that extra playoff spot has kept the Vikings alive and kept the, uh, the Washington football team alive. So I think it's created some excitement. At least I see it in the NFC right now. The AFC is kind of separated a little bit more, but that seven team in the playoffs has kind of made it interesting. Speaking with former quarterback and now Buffalo Bills fan, Ron Jaworski. Well, I, I grew up in Buffalo. Too. I grew up in Buffalo. <laughs> <I know. laughs> I'll tell you guys how, how crazy I am. You, you, you guys know I'm a football whack job. I was 10 years old, and I had season tickets by myself to the Buffalo Bills. I lived in the suburb of Buffalo, and I still remember the seat. Section 23, row 13, seat 3 at the old Buffalo Rock Pile. So now I know I'm a Bills fan. <laughs> Well, let me ask you, Ron, quickly, just to, to go back to what Ira said. Why do you like the Bills? I mean, you saw what happened last night. I realized those were uh, unusual weather conditions. But why do you like them when they've been sort of stumbling all over themselves the last couple of months or three and four while the, the Patriots are getting better and better, it seems like, each week? Well, it, it's funny. I, I, I just I, I've always said this about Bill. Bill 
you know, tinkers, you know, he, he's got, he tinkers with his team with Belichick for like the first quarter, maybe the half of the season, but he's got a, a picture of what he wants his team to look like going into that last quarter. And yeah. I think Bill's got this team kind of where they are right now. And I think Sean to a certain degree is doing the same thing. He's trying to find, you know, that combination that is really going to work as you go into the playoffs you know, they, they're going to get a home game likely. But I think he's, he's tinkering with his team a little bit. And during that tinkering process, and, of course, you know, you lose to Davis White, significant loss to your football right, team, right. Uh, significant loss. But as you tinker, I think Sean knows now what he wants his team to look the fourth quarter of the season and is going to adapt to that. Okay. Um, and then secondly, I, I thought it was interesting when you are talking about Eric Allen and, and Ricky Waters because – I was right. We do value your insight. You should be on that board because like some others in your profession, you know a lot about what happened in that era. And some people on that board don't. And so we really value what you had to say. I covered Ricky Waters in San Francisco and then he left. He was a great player for the 49ers. But um, you said you probably don't think that he's a Hall of Famer. He certainly has the numbers to make it. But I had a conversation with him when he was in Seattle and I told him sort of the same thing you did. I said, if you'd stayed in San Francisco, I think you would have been because they would have won more Super Bowls. You were a yep. perfect fit for them, a perfect fit. Um, but he left and he left for the right reasons in his mind because he got more money and, and he ended up <laughs> yeah. going on. Yeah, That's usually the reason. Yeah. <laughs> usually the reason. Um, but his numbers, people would say, well, those are Hall of Fame numbers, but you certainly watched him, so did I. Yeah. Why do you say you don't think? Well, and again, I mean, it, 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 they're different eras of the game. I mean, sure. you know, when we look at, I, it is fine. You know, looking at it, I'll make this a personal looking, you know, when I retired, my numbers were better than 13 hall of fame quarterbacks. This is what Ray Dinger told me the story one time. Now, should I have been a hall of fame quarterback? No, but someone could make the argument. Yeah. His numbers. You look at my numbers now, probably not in the top 200, you know, and, and, but that's how the game has changed. And, and, the, the era changes, and it's hard to evaluate guys by certain eras which, which they played in. The quarterback numbers now are just crazy. There's going to be right. 17 games. How are you going to look back at a guy that made and deserved to be in the Hall of Fame as a quarterback? But someone's, you know, 10 years from now, when we're not around doing this, guys, they're going to say, my God, that quarterback, look at those numbers. He, you know, look at Joe Namath. You know, he had more interceptions. How do you get in the Hall of Fame? So it's, I think the different eras are going to skew how guys get in. And, and, like I said, I, I'm giving my my optic of Ricky Waters. Great football player. Cool guy. Love Ricky. And I agree with you, by the way. If you just stayed in San Francisco, I think it, when you become a journeyman, I think it does tarnish the image a little bit, the perception of, of what yep. they did. Um, hey, he did really good things in Philly. did really good things in, in Seattle. But when I look at the complete body of work, I just when I think of the guys that are in the Hall of Fame, I think he's a little short. Yeah, no, I, I'm with you. And I always thought that comment, you know, for who, for what, Never left him. That hurt him. It never really left him. And people. Well, he he said in Philly, which is you know, <laughs> yeah. And actually, I, I you know at that time, I looked at that play probably a thousand times, and Randall was way late getting the ball over the middle. It was a cover two split safety. He ran him across the field. Ricky would have got killed by that backside safety. So his first comment was he probably should said Randall for who for what you know when he came <laughs> out you know. <laughs> Ron, I think I speak for uh, Clark and, and our producer, Ian. You, you you might be our favorite guest, Mr. Jordan. <laughs> he is. I love, not, not I love coming be, out with you guys. Is. You never need so, some stuff. Hey, give me a call, man. I, you know, I, I, so, I love Ron, what are you doing Ron. next week? <laughs> Ron, coming off last night's game, I got to ask you this. Um, and give me it from a quarterback's perspective. Ron, give me the day on a Sunday morning 
when you woke up and you said, oh, Jesus, this weather, oh, I got to go out there in this weather. What, what's the one game in your mind that, that you go back and say, Gee, how, how the hell am I going to throw the ball? today you you put this on a tee for me ira you i mean you, you I'm, I'm just getting my drive 250 right down the middle right now it was a 1980 nfc championship game in philadelphia we're playing the dallas cowboys it is 15 below zero the wind chill factor so we finally get to the nfc championship game. we got to play in this weather the field is frozen the wind is blowing 25 miles an hour i'm one of those guys that I like to go out in the field early, you know, kind of loosen up and walk around the field, get my mind right, and all those things. And there were garbage trucks going up and down the field at Veterans Stadium, breaking up the ice. <laughs> we didn't have, you know, we didn't have these highfalutin you know, underground heating systems and all this stuff <laughs> that we now have. You know, they had garbage trucks going up and down the field to break up the ice. We ended up winning the game, but I'll never forget how cold it was. And, Ron, I covered that game for United <laughs> Press, and I can still see Wilbert Montgomery going off left guard for 43 yards, Ronnie. You'll never forget that play. I write slot split 47 slant on two. <laughs> <laughs> How's that for recollection? <laughs> hey, Ron, I got a couple more things to ask you about um, Claude Humphrey. I mean, we go back to the sort of the beginning of this yeah. conversation, but um, – he got inducted into Canton in 2014, but he had several other opportunities as a finalist, including once as a senior finalist and didn't get in. Why do you think it took him so long to get into the hall? It's a, that's a really good question. Um, I would say some people probably didn't drill down enough on what he gave to his football team and the quality of player that he was and the, and the team player that he was. And, you know, uh, let's be real here. Atlanta wasn't a, a, you know, a great football team. Right. So they weren't a team that, you know, weren't on national TV much. Um, everyone that was a, you know, kind of new football, new Claude Humphrey was a great player, but, you know, greatness doesn't project to the hall of fame. And I think you guys make that clear. And I think you're 100% correct. And I know Ira, you and I have had this discussion many, many times. It, it should be hard because when you get in, you know, it, it means a lot more when you do get in because it was a, a difficult road. Um, but, you know, I'm thinking of that era when they weren't on TV much. People didn't know much about him. When he came to Philly, yes, we we started going to the playoffs. We went to the Super Bowl. People became aware of him. He had, you know, 14 and a half sacks a year. We go to the Super Bowl. Uh, and, again, I still think it was more, but that they didn't really track sacks at that time like they are now. Um, but, I, yeah, I, why he wasn't, you know, why he didn't get it sooner, I don't know. But he was, he was clearly worthy, and I think, if there was an error, it wasn't getting him in soon enough, but the error was corrected and he's, he's a hall of, he was a hall of famer. And what is Claude Humphrey's legacy? The character of the man. Uh, that, that's what I remember most about. I'm, I'm, I'm going to forget about the football player. Cause I, you know, that, that, that people can, can envision that what people don't know the guy he was in that locker room. He, they don't know about the guy all week in his preparation for the game how the young players that came in the league looked up to him and respected him because, you know, he was a burly, tough guy with a deep kind of voice, you know. And when, when Claude spoke, everybody listened. You know, Ron, another guy from Atlanta that uh, was in the same boat as Claude was uh, Tommy Nobis. Yeah. Tommy Nobis, some really bad teams, Ron. They were never on television, never. Yeah, and he broke my shoulder two hours, so I don't like Tommy Nobis. Oh. <laughs> I'm just kidding. He was a fantastic football player. There's absolutely no doubt of that. And of all plays, I ran a quarterback sneak. 
and I leaped over the top, going up over the top. He meets me here, boom, drives me in the ground, boom, six weeks. Oh. <laughs> Thanks for mentioning all these good thoughts, uh, Ira. <laughs> hey, Ron, a, a couple last ones, just uh, yeah. off the top of my head, because you'd mentioned uh, Tom Brady and, and what he's doing. You mentioned Mac Jones. How interested are you, or do you think the rest of the country is, in a Bucks patriots Super Bowl? Uh, 99%. <laughs> Come on, Brady Belichick, you know, and, and you guys know Bills as well as anybody, right? Yeah. Last year when Tom got all the credit and everyone's talking Brady, Belichick, and all of a sudden, you know, the tide swayed toward Tom. You don't think Bill was, I mean, just putting all that in the back of his brain? You know, we know, we all know Bill well enough. You know, I had to play quarterback against Bill twice a year when he was running the Giants' defense. You know, so I, I know how that man thinks to a certain degree. But you know, Bill was getting ready for this moment. He was getting ready. I mean, as a fan and as as a guy that loves the game, you think of two just guys that cerebrally understand this game better than anybody to see those two going head to head. Oh, man, I couldn't think of a better Super Bowl and a better couple of weeks prior to that game. Lastly, uh, Dick Vermeil, whom you mentioned, is the nominee, the coach's nominee for the class of 2022. A, how happy are you that he's been the nominee? And B, if and when he's chosen, what are the chances he will get emotional in his acceptance speech? Well, I mean, Coach has always been an emotional guy. That, that's the way he is. And I think that's the, the beauty of Dick Vermeil. He cares so much about his profession, cares so much about people. And, uh, you know, obviously, you know, you know, we all believe he will get, you know, the rubber stamp and be inducted into the Hall of Fame. Uh, he deserves to be there. He's waited an awful long time. Um, I speak to the coach on a, on a regular basis. As I said, he's now out in his Napa Valley vineyards out there uh, on a tractor somewhere getting his grapes ready, you know? So, uh, but, but what, what I think of, you know, the great people I've been around this game, not only as a coach and, you know, he coached me and I'm, I'm, I'm so thankful for everything he's done, but he has impacted so many lives in a positive way. Uh, I, I went to the Kurt Warner premier American underdog last week. It was mm-hmm. obviously it was, it's about Kurt Warner's career and, you know, the Dick real plays a very important part of that. And you could just see, yeah, we all know the kind of character, Kurt Warner is, but then you see how Dick Vermeil brought him along, you know, gave him that opportunity and all the things that, that worked, but the trend greens of the world, the quarterbacks that Dick Vermeil had as, as his quarterbacks in, in the NFL. Um, he taught me a lot more about being a better person than he did about being a better quarterback. And, and not, he was a great football coach and he was a great designer. He did win a Super Bowl championship. He won a lot of games, but I, I when I think of the, the Dick Vermeil, I think of how much more he's meant to, even guys like you, you know, I mean, you know, I was on that committee for that uh, uh, from Roger Goodell to select the hundred best players of it, the right. first hundred years, and we sat in those meetings. And it was like, I'm almost like, what am I doing in this meeting? You know, I got Vermeil, John Madden, Bill Belichick, and we were talking about players in the '30s and the '40s, and I mean, it was. I mean, I still got my my notes because I somewhere I'll leave them to my grandkids. You know, and I look at these notes. Like, Who were these guys? <laughs> but you know, but it was so much fun hearing from some some greats in the business talk about other players and who gets into that. And, you know, when we mentioned a Claude Humphrey and a Dick Vermeil and a Bill Bell, we're talking about, we're talking about, we're talking about greatness here, you know, the, the great. So I, I, I'm just so thrilled that things have worked out well for the coach. Well, Ron, uh, our listeners don't really know it, but we're on a zoom call. And since you mentioned the 100 greatest players, I want Ira to lean over because you can see that Christmas tree behind him. 
Is that one hundred of the one of the one hundred greatest Christmas trees you've seen? <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't think so. What do you? Hey, do? Hey. I got a hundred presents under there, and and one of them is going to be forwarded to Mister Jaworski. <laughs> Wait, but let me reach back and see what I got back here, Ira. Oh, I, I think that trumps it. One of these. <laughs> He's holding a Lombardi trophy. <laughs> that drums hey. it. Uh, yeah, I just like to look at it every day, you know? <laughs> That's pretty nice. That's pretty sweet. Uh, well, actually, I, I, people always ask me, I do these Zoom at Charles, what's that Lombardi trophy? Because they remember we lost Super Bowl 15. But I said, well, when Eagles won Super Bowl 52, I was on the uh, selection committee that hired Doug Peterson. So after we hired Doug at Jeffrey Lurie's house, we all took a picture and Jeffrey said, when we win the Super Bowl, everybody here gets a ring and a trophy. So <laughs> I'm in. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Ron, Ian was on the selection committee that hired Ira and me for this show. What, is, what does he get? Does he get anything? <laughs> Probably some coal under that tree. <laughs> <laughs> Ron Jaworski, as always, great stuff. Thank you so much. Thanks, guys. Love you guys. Have a great holiday. You Thanks, got Ron. it. That was former Eagles quarterback and our favorite guest. Ira's right. Our favorite guest, Ron Jaworski. Ira, um, great question on the Hall of Famers, Eric Allen and, and Ricky Waters. You got a straight shot with that. Really straight answer. Thanks. And uh, and Clark, you know, it, it does make me feel a little old when he's talking about that 1980 season NFC title game. And Clark, I was there at oh, wait, the vet. You, you, I'm sorry. What did you say? I said I was there, Clark. There it is. There. there it is. Because, ladies and gentlemen, this is Christmas season, we thought we'd give you an early present. That's one of those, I guess it's under Iris Tree, but it's our I Was There segment. But as you've never heard it before, because Ira, it's going to be in two parts. And I'm, you know, I'm sure you saw the Bills Patriots game last night. I know you did. And since you mentioned that game in 1980 that you were at, I was going to ask you, what's a bad weather game that you've been to? Go at it, Ira. All right, Clark, I'm going to trump that game against the Cowboys uh, and the game that propelled the Eagles to, to the Super Bowl, okay. which they lost. And Clark, and you might have been at one of these games. It, it's two, two years in a row. The, the Washington Redskins, and yes, they were the Redskins, 82 season, 83 season. Clark, I'm working for UPI. I'm a young reporter, and I'm at the NFC title games both years. And Clark, you know what I'm going to say? Open air press box. Absolutely. Freezing my butt off. Yep. Yep. RFK. RFK. Yeah. Um, I'm going to go back to December 23rd, 2007. Guess where, Ira? Buffalo. <laughs> it was Buffalo. You can imagine. But I got to the game. They were playing the Giants. I got to the game and it was 52 degrees. I went, what are the chances? This is phenomenal. You walk in there. Practically needed a short sleeve shirt and shorts that day. But that was at 1 p.m. All right. <laughs> then the wind started. Then the rain came. Then the temperature dropped. <laughs> By the end of the game, it was a blizzard and the wind was howling. Final score was Giants 38, Bills 21. And the Giants qualified for the 2007 playoffs that year. Uh, sorry, Ian, you know what happened. But in that game, all the points, all the points, reminiscent of last night's game, all the points were scored in one end zone because the wind was so bad that you couldn't go the other way. But as I said, we know what happened uh, in that, 
that wild card. They got the wild card. And somehow, Ian, they kind of got to the Super Bowl. and That was Orchard Park, Clark? Orchard that was Park. Orchard Park, yeah. Um, but anyway, the next day, I go to the airport, and now we got a blizzard. We got a blizzard. And some of the writers, New York writers, they drove home because they said, we're not going to fly. There are no flights, but we drove home. I'm trying to get a flight, and I'm looking outside, and there's no way. I called my wife and said, not coming home for Christmas Eve. I, I don't think we're getting out of here. Pilot walks by and I said, we're going to fly. He goes, you kidding me? This is nothing. <laughs> and we flew out. <laughs> we flew out. Anyway, Ira, final thoughts for today. All right, Clark, I got a quick story for you. And you as a fellow scribe will understand it. Clark, last Friday, I got to write a buck column. The day before the decision comes down on Antonio Brown, he's suspended for three days, three games. Clark, I write this column and, and I shape it say, basically saying, Antonio Brown screwed over Bruce Arians in this respect. Arians is the guy who stood in front of the media at the end of training camp. We're 100% vaccinated. We're good to go. Everybody. We got everybody. And also, Clark, Arians is the guy who told Antonio Brown when they signed him, one screw up and you're out of here. And everybody understood it. So I wrote this whole column about, you know, this is very unfair to Arians. He's probably not going to release the guy because, let's face it, Clark, uh, Antonio Brown gives the Bucs a better chance to win the Super Bowl. He does. You can't argue that. Uh, Clark, 150 comments within three hours. And 90% saying, Kaufman, you don't know what you're talking about. I'm never going to read your column again. The anti-vaxxers came out. The politics came out. Brown did nothing wrong. And Clark, I learned something you learned a long time ago. Don't get in the gutter with these people. You can't change their minds. And it's been rough, Clark. They, 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 turn, they turned on the sage. They, they turned did turn on. on the sage. But doesn't mean you're not the sage. You're always a sage. And uh, thanks for writing that, by the way, Ara. The other thing I want to mention today in closing is today, by the way, is the 80th anniversary of the uh, attack on Pearl Harbor, one that cost 2,400 Americans their lives. I I mentioned that. I used to live in Hawaii when I was a kid. My dad was in the service, so it's very uh, important to me, and I think it should be to uh, hundreds of thousands, millions of others. Uh, Anyway, What's the uh, best, uh, Clark, what's the best movie uh, uh, about Pearl Harbor? What's the best movie about it? Is it Torah, Torah, Torah? Um, No, I... I mean, no, you didn't I, like that. You didn't like that stupid movie with Ben Affleck, right? I no, mean, that was bad. Movie. No, that was bad. Um, probably from here to eternity. Probably that. Uh, you remember seeing that Burt Lancaster, Deborah yeah. Carr? Um, great movie, and I thought it gave you a great backdrop to what was a, an, an awful, awful situation. You know, it's funny, Ira. Three years ago, we talked to someone that you would know, I would think, because he coached in Tampa, Tom Bass who was a former defensive coordinator there. And I got to know him in San Diego as a defensive coordinator. And he was there as a six-year-old, the son of an uh, army uh, sergeant who was stationed at Hickam Air Force Base. And he was out playing that morning when the planes went overhead. And we interviewed him three years ago. And he talked about seeing them going over and identifying the the Japanese um, uh, flag and and not really knowing what it was as a six-year-old. And then seeing the explosions and knowing something amiss was happening, but they thought they were just doing sort of fireworks down at the um, uh, Naval uh, Air Station at the Harbor. And his dad knew exactly what was going on. And so from then on, they sort of 
got their mattresses out, ran for cover, that that sort of stuff. But anyway, no, Clark, was- uh, Clark. Another aspect of from here to eternity, you probably know this, is a lot of people think that uh, that Al Martino character in Godfather One. I got to yeah. get that picture; it's perfect for me. Right. They think that was Frank Sinatra uh, begging for the part in From Here to Eternity. He got the part. I think he won a Best uh, Supporting Actor, and it turned around Sinatra's career and resurrected it. Yeah, I thought it was. Wasn't it? Wasn't that the portrayal? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, anyway, there you go. That's going to do it for this week's I Test for Two podcast. We want to thank Ron Jaws Jaworski. What a great guest he is. Fabulous. Uh, Thank him for joining us. Hall of Fame producer Ian Glendon for listening to those Patriots nightmare stories. Bad enough that we had to recreate that 2007 playoff. But then Jaws says, what? He's not picking them for the Super Bowl. Sorry about that, Ian. <laughs> and, and also, Ira, I want to thank you for your um, your, your cinematic expertise. That was thank great. You, yeah, well, thank you so much. Anyway, we want to thank you all for listening to us, too. We'll be back next week with, what is it, Ira? Um, the, uh, it, it's the eye test for two. And by I the test. way, one more, one more thing, Clark, about from here to return. What, wasn't Todd Rundgren in that movie? Uh, no, Clark, no, no, no. He no. did the score. He just did the score uh, for it. Thanks, Ira. <laughs> anyway, we'll see you next week.